Welcome to the podcast called The Word. And I am Lanky One. I didn't finish the name of the podcast. <laughs> I, I know. Are we I, just called The Word now? The Word. <laughs> That's the name of the Bible. Dude, I don't think we can take that one. The Word. Doesn't that, that sounds like, hill. that sounds like, um, uh, a particular like ministry, like welcome to the word. It sounds like a Protestant version of the Bible that you'd find in like a cornerstone bookstore. Yeah, the word in in fancy cursive. Yeah, yeah. lettering, right? Or just like big bold stuff with like light shining f- behind it on blue. A lot of bling, bling. Yeah, I can see that. There's a lot of variations. Lots of. I thought of a great name for a megachurch the other day. And I can't remember what oh, it was. Oh, I remember. I was there. Was it on the podcast? Was it on the podcast? I don't remember. I don't either. It was great, though. Yeah. It, it, was, may, it probably wasn't that good. It really was good. Somebody's probably planting that church right now <laughs> as we speak. <laughs> oh, you guys, it is the 25th fifth Sunday of Ordinary Time. I have a quick shout out. Excuse me for my hiccups. Dude, I'll tell you, Michael Flight wants to give a oh my gosh. shout out. Yes, shout out. <laughs> in honor of Sister Jamie taking final vows for the Franciscans of the Eucharist <laughs> Chicago. What, what? What did you just call them? Franciscan Eucharist of the Chicago. Franciscan. <laughs> Dude, okay. It was some variation. So this is the thing is that I've, I've given up sugar. Mm. And, um, and what happens- is, um, Except for Aunt Jemima syrup, it, dude. I forgot. Well, I'm not trying to call you out, dude. I forgot that syrup was sugar, dude. <laughs> like, dude, that's messed up. Exclusively, that's like how, that's how that's how deep I am. I am, and but I what think happened, a lot of people did. I had some birthday cake last mm. night in honor of um uh, of Brian Westhoff. What's up, Brian? Shout out, shout out right there. And uh and uh and it's fogged my brain, dude. The sugar has. Yeah, man. I can't even pronounce Franciscans. You get you did. I just call. I shouldn't have called you. No, you didn't. You, mis- <laughs> you mispronounced it, but I shouldn't have called you but out. This is it. the thing. This is what Sorry. happens when the sugar is sugar on the brain, bro. Sugar on the brain. You haven't any today, right? No, man. I'm I mean, it's pretty late in the day already, so it's it's getting out of your system. It is. It's now getting, it's just you. No, <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> oh, man. You can't blame it on anything, <laughs> father. <laughs> no, no, no. Blame it on everything. Yeah. I'm not. I don't want to get into the whole thing, but I mean, just in a time of crisis, thanks be to God that people are still listening to the vocations. Right? Yeah. People are still being ordained priests. People are still going into to be sisters. People are still responding to God. Yes. In the midst of hard times. But I was telling somebody that I'm just thinking, you know, with all of the stuff that's happening in the church today, uh-huh. the the priests that we're gonna see coming out of the seminary seven, mm-hmm. eight years from now. Yep. I mean, can you imagine what kind of priests we're gonna be having that are gonna be being ordained six, seven years from now? Dude, that's, that's awesome. This really, it got really exciting to me. Yeah. Because gone are the days where it's easy or popular or, you know, you're going to get a lot of accolades for going into the seminary, right? I mean, some people might, some old lady at Daily Mass might give you, give you a slap on the back. But, I mean, you're going in, if you're going to the seminary saying to be a priest, you're going in to study to be a priest. Like, you're, you're taking the hard route. And I'm just thinking of what the church is going to look like. In a few years from now, which is really well, we one of these actually, unspoken blessings of a crisis. We get to see them. I know we do, which that's, is kind of cool. That's actually kind of our job. I know. Is to, to know. form lay and cleric leaders of yeah. the, for the new evangelization in the Americas. Absolutely. So thanks for the shout out uh, on behalf of Michael Flight and Sister Jamie. Yeah, Michael Flight. That sounds like a name that I know from a movie or something. It sounds like a famous name. It does. Michael Flight. Sounds like a. What does it sound like? A cop. 
or something. <laughs> I was gonna say a Harlem Globetrotter. <laughs> I don't know. Either way, Either, you take it I as mean, a compliment, Michael. Yeah, absolutely. However, you take that. Well, our right. fr- first reading today for you the twenty fifth Sunday. You nudge your way into that first reading. Don't you? <laughs> you love it. Uh, well, today's the twenty fifth Sunday in ordinary time. You better believe it. Also, the feast of Saint Padre Pio, right? Yeah, yeah. Is that what you said? Yeah, Is it his yes. feast? Like yeah, yeah. properly? Yeah, yeah. Like that's the cool. day, September twenty third. Is, is is Pio, but I he's totally Pio. trumped by Twenty Fifth Sunday. Yeah, well, that, but it's which, kind of which is day. the way he would probably have it. He would do it that so way. That's okay. First reading is <laughs> second chapter of Wisdom, mm-hmm. verses twelve, jumping to seventeen to mm-hmm. twenty. That's a big jump. Yep. Our responsorial <laughs> psalm is coming from Psalm fifty-four, 54. verse three through four. four, five, six, capital letters and eight. Do you have that on yours? <laughs> no, on the USCCB it, website. It, Look at that. It's three to four, five, six, <laughs> and, and, and eight. <laughs> it sounds like an older person who writes their emails in all caps, dude, just dude. yelling at you. Yeah, it's, I don't it's, want to be yelled at, USCCB. Dude, somebody was telling me about an email they got the other day, and they said, I'm not yelling at you. I'm just writing in all caps. It was like a weird thing. Yeah, like, how can maybe you... Kelsey or somebody was telling us about that. Yeah, it was very but strange. But they acknowledged they were writing in all caps. Yeah. They knew it sounded like they were yelling at the person. But I just, which makes me go like, I don't understand. Why can't if you, you just turn off the caps? Lock? <laughs> <laughs> Have knows... we done this all yet? Yes. Yeah, that's how it started yeah, this yeah, whole And thing. our this second reading is lessons. James chapter 3, verses 16 to chapter 4, verses 3. And not to pick on the grammar of the USCCB website, but look at how long the hyphen is there. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody. Do, do you know that, that this particular Sunday on the USCCB's here, website? Here's a piece of trivia. The difference between a short dash and a long dash. Oh, I used is, to know this. Is what? It, well, no. Oh, you're not the, asking me. No, the Thanks space. God. The space yep. is the difference between an N and an M. E N versus E M, which is just different. So it's an M. It's an M space versus an N space. The is there significance to the times that you use each? Um, there is, but I don't know what That's it is. That's what I couldn't remember because yeah. I'd heard that there was. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> our gospel, of course, is coming from the gospel of Ma- Mark. <laughs> what is wrong with me? <laughs> Good heavens. Mark chapter 9, verses 30 through 37. So wisdom, oh, you know. This be attentive. Is, wisdom, be attentive. Dude, I, <laughs> yes. that's the reason why I'm not a Byzantine priest because I would do it that way. I saw a uh, a bumper sticker. I think it was on Father Michael O'Laughlin's car that said something like "Honk thirty times if you're a Byzantine." Which I always thought that was a great bumper sticker. <laughs> right? Because they repeat everything. Yeah, yeah, I love it. I love it. All right, wisdom. Be attentive, uh, um, le- dude. This is the. I, I really don't know what to say about wisdom here. Well, you're in luck because <laughs> I do. You do. I have some stuff. So good. Yeah, I, 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 so. Could, I could make commentary on it, but I don't know how to preface or contextualize it. You know, well, I can contextualize it. I don't have that much commentary. Okay, so this is great. See. We're up. See, this is why we're good together. This is this is our Havarim, dude. The Book of Wisdom. Um, it's one of those. So it's one of the Deuterocanonical books, which means it doesn't show up in our Protestant friends' Bibles or in Jewish Bibles, partially having to do with when it was likely um, authored. Yeah, what's the word I'm looking for? End. No. Inspired by I the keep Holy Spirit? Going to conceived, con- concocted. <laughs> concocted. What's the, I, I, doesn't that frustrate you when you have a word? Cacophonated? You, yeah, cacophonated. That's what I'm looking for. Anyway, it's uh, one of the Deuterocanonicals. <laughs> it, nobody's exactly sure when it was written. It was probably written 
I like the theory that it was written up in Alexandria in Egypt in the time that the 70 elders went up to Alexandria to translate the Old Testament into the Septuagint, mm. right? Yeah. So when so you guys have probably heard, maybe you may or maybe not, you've heard of the Septuagint. The Septuagint, it's this fancy word to describe the first translation of the Old Testament from Hebrew into Greek. And what was happening at the time, um, this is during a, a period in the Greek Empire, Called the uh, the Ptolemy the Ptolemy the Ptolemian dynasty silent yeah. P on the front, but during the reign of Ptolemy, who was one of the kings, um, this was when the Greeks. It was a very bright moment in Greek history when the Greeks were really into philosophy and thought and wisdom, and there was this idea that we would gather all of the wisdom from around the empire and call together all of the sages and scribes from all of these different traditions and cultures that existed within the empire, bring them to Alexandria in Egypt to have them translate all of their holy books and their histories into Greek so that there would be one library where everyone could access all of human wisdom and knowledge. It was really beautiful, right? That's the, the library in Alexandria. It was one of the seven wonders of the world. You're just staring at me blankly. Yeah. You know this. Yeah, you yeah, know this whole yeah, day. Yeah, I, I, think I don't know I, if they do, though. I think I want to have my MC name be Silent P. <laughs> 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 yeah, that's that sounds right. Which works because Peter. Oh, and then they'd call you Eater. <laughs> eater. No, the P is silent. You should correct people. <laughs> Father Peter? No, it's Eater. The P is silent. No, I really just wanted that's to That's a great line. I just really wanted to like take the profundity of knowledge that you just dropped oh and and fixate on some detail that Thank has you. absolutely no real substance at all. To it, it has a great deal of substance. Otherwise, <laughs> no one will know how to pronounce Ptolemy's name. Okay. <laughs> okay. Anyway, so, so while really, they're up Ale- there. Alexandria, really, I mean, like, what a beautiful project, which yeah. I've commented a few years ago that there is a project to try to collect yeah. all of human knowledge um, on archive.org. So he says he has seven mirrored um, uh, servers, and one of them is in Alexandria, just for the just for the, for the symbolic value of, of yeah, that's cool that Alexandria is this like the project the of Alexandria is, yeah. is is still can take place. Yeah, that's really I think that's really cool and kind of beautiful. Yeah, which was what the Greeks were into in those days. So it's called the Septuagint, Septa coming from seventy. There were seventy elders. As goes the tradition, mm-hmm. rabbis who went up and translated the whole Old Testament. So this is we're talking. What, between two and three hundred years before Jesus? That's the time period we're dealing with, which means that they're in what's known as the diaspora. So the exile, Jerusalem has been obliterated. The 12 tribes have been kind of wiped out. There's the remnant who was allowed to come back and resettle Jerusalem, rebuild the temple, do all their things. But basically, it's, it's a time period when the Jewish people are trying to find how to live out Judaism in a real time of exile and time of being dispersed. And the world doesn't... I. There was a time prior to the exile when, this is, I think, the best way to read wisdom. Wisdom, by the way, there were a number of books that when they went up to Alexandria to translate the Old Testament, they also translated a number of other books that were stories and important, you know, uh, gatherings of wisdom literature that were then being used by the time of Jesus. Wisdom is one of those. So Jesus was learning this stuff. He was studying it, as was Paul and all the rest and the apostles. But what it's dealing with is, and you had this time period prior to the exile, where all of Jewish life centered around the Torah. Where do you find wisdom? You find wisdom in the Torah and the scriptures and God's word to us. But this is actually dealing with a time in history when they, at least for a while, they lost the Torah, or at least access to it, because the temple was destroyed, the priesthood was wiped out, Jerusalem was gone, and now they're rebuilding and we're coming back together. But it speaks to this time when they had to figure out, I know we've spoken to this a lot, how yeah. do you be, how do you 
live out the life of God? How do you live like a good Jew without all of the stuff that we used to turn to? So where do you find wisdom? Well, in the past, everything was centered around the Torah. Now not everybody has a Torah. Not everybody has access to that or the temple liturgy. So where do you find wisdom? Well, you find it in creation. Mm. And so it speaks to all of creation itself. The heavens are telling the glory of God. And all creation is all creation is shining for joy. But dude, I love this. Is the thing is that that's like the the core of Psalm eighteen, which is like the 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 the, the yeah. Day is and that what I was just that, singing? Yeah, <laughs> thank you. Yeah, Sorry, I like, but yeah, Psalm, Psalm eighteen is is just saying like the day up to day unto day takes up the message, and night unto night makes the message known. Yeah, um, yet not a, a word is or a voice is heard. So. I, I love that idea that you can actually look and discover within all of creation and so the, the, question, the, the heart of God. And so the question is, what are we trying to discover? What is the heart of God? Well, the way that the author um, describes it is basically the difference between good and evil. Where do you find good and where do you find evil? Mm. And sort of creation itself speaks to this this dividing line, right? Not, I was going to say disconnect, but that's not right. The division between those who seek wisdom and those who seek evil, the righteous and the unrighteous. That's one of the things that wisdom says that creation itself speaks to. This is evident. You can find this. You don't need, I mean, th- this is what Catholics actually have always called natural, uh, natural theology, yeah. that we can know who God is even if no one gave us a Bible. Even if you never attended Sunday school. We can't know the nature of the Trinity. No, There's you can't a, know everything. You, you, but You can get an insight. Yeah, and that's really what wisdom is speaking to. Mm. This stuff is discernible. Reading the actual text, it's obvious why the church has inserted this. It's obvious why the church has turned us to this because the, the, the Christocentric um, echoes and, and prefigurements are so clear. This is about Jesus. But what wisdom is doing in its seek, its seeking and its its um, reflection on where do you find wisdom, it personifies wisdom. Right. And it says wisdom is a person. And here is what this person, it just usually described in the feminine tense, here is what she is and here's what she's not. And here's where the unrighteous, you know, reject wisdom. But those who seek her are like this, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. And I think it's so fascinating that here in the wisdom literature, you know, hundreds of years before Christ, wisdom is personified as a person. Mm. And this person who is wisdom in this instance is obnoxious to the unrighteous. Wisdom sets itself against the doings of the unrighteous. It reproaches us for our transgressions of the law. It charges us with violations of our training. Let's see, say the unright, say the evil, the wicked. Let's see whether his words, wisdom's words are true. Let's find out what will happen to him. For if the just one be the son of God, God will defend him. And I, I, as I'm reading this, I can't remember where the line is between the personification of wisdom in this text right. and the person then who's following wisdom. Mm-hmm. And even the fact that the lines get a little blurred, I think is sort of beautiful about the text because wisdom is described as a person, but then the person who is trying to be wise and follow God's wisdom is also personified. I mean, obviously that's a person. Yeah. And the lines get a little blurred about, between who we're talking about. Which Wait, is, are we talking about wisdom or the person who's trying to be wise? Yes. Yes, which is what's so interesting about being a Catholic. Yes. And in being a part of the mystical body of Christ is that that we uh, that God is so generous that that God decides to identify with us. Yeah. And, and we can be called Christian. And just to clarify, this is about the righteous man. It says in my train, this is the righteous person. And it's right. in the 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 masculine tense. 
And the feminine, the wisdom will be described in this feminine tense. But again, the lines get a little bit blurry, which is, you're exactly right. And it's such a profound, and this is why the church has always loved the wisdom literature. Right. Because there's fewer places where it's as clear what God has been preparing his people for. Right. Oh, wisdom is this thing that God sent to earth that is personified and will be rejected and beat up and basically put to death and then be vindicated in the end. Oh, that's interesting. And then the people who then associate, I mean, wisdom then associates himself with us, herself in this case, but then we then become associated with wisdom because we are Christians. And if Jesus is wisdom personified and we are attached to him and we become a part of him, then that's where we become Christians because we are part of Christ. Yeah, this this is really interesting because this reading from wisdom brings up um, this idea of uh, Jewish scholars trying to understand what is the Messiah going to look like, yeah. right? Because we see there's something very clear about personified wisdom. Do you think they are? And well, it wasn't. There's this quote, and I can't remember, and I can't remember if it's from you or where it was. But somebody let's was. Let's say it's me. Let's say that it was you, Scott. <laughs> I'm just so, saying that um, that there was there's a branch of Jewish scholarship that that is saying, um, for us to be able to discover who the messiah is it seems like we have two distinct people okay that they that that, that it, there's too much to fulfill in a singular person okay because on one hand we see this okay the obnoxious one yeah. who's going to actually be killed you know cuz it's this is the thing is that is that Christ and his Christ and his demands upon our life are, are a lot yes right it's it's for real like it's it's really hard if you've ever been around somebody who lives a really good life, there's something accusatory yeah. to you because you're saying, what am I doing? Because there's something intrinsic yeah. written into our nature, written into mm. what's around us that says, um, like, the, the consequences of our sins are always going to redound upon us. Yeah. If if you're living a heavy drinking life, you're going to have hangovers. Yeah. You know, if yeah. you're if you're if you're getting high, you're going to be forgetful. You're like, like these, these are the things that you're going to have consequences. Mm. You know, if, if you're living in a, a lustful way, you're going to objectify other people and you're going to miss their personhood right. and uh, there's, and you're not going to actually be able to foster real relationships. So yeah. it's like, this is the mm. thing is like written into, into nature. Partially because you'll see those people who aren't living your lifestyle. That's what I'm saying. Like, who do they think they are? Right. And then you, but then it, it's, Cause you it's, know that you ought to be like that. It's like Herod listening to yes. John the Baptist. Yes. He's going like, "Oh, this this is like this is like this hurts me in yeah. this place where I want to be able to be transformed." And right. that's why it's like, "Okay, well, we see in this the crucifixion saying like, well, no, when that's fully brewed, you're it's going you're gonna have to accept or reject it. It's yeah. gonna cause a decision in your life." Absolutely. And that's and that's where wisdom has this beautiful insight into the crucifixion of Christ. It's going to, well, how did you say that it's going to force a decision in your life? Yes. So speaking of decisions Yo. that are not always good, uh-huh. we turn to the Psalms. Mm. And I find the Psalm very interesting this week. So there's the Psalm. Again, there's like, oh, Psalm is cool. I, I, I kind of get that. So the Lord upholds my life is the refrain. Okay. Right? Oh God, by your name, save me and by your might defend my cause. Oh God, hear my prayer. So you read the first reading 
you know, which has to do with the wicked and the, and the righteous, mm-hmm. the idea of those who are trying to pursue truth, the idea that those who see the righteous are ticked off and want to reject and want to put them to, de- you know, talks about putting the righteous man to death, a shameful death, and let's see if God takes care of him. This is the spitefulness, right? right? Not just jealousy, but a spite. And then you read the psalm, and it talks about the presumably the righteous person who is asking to be saved and by God's name to be protected and defended and the Lord to hear his prayer says the haughty men, the haughty being, uh, I just like the word haughty, haughty, um, the, the big headed men seek my life. Ruthless men seek my life. They seek not God before their eyes. Bold God is my helper, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I, a couple weeks ago talked about how fun it is to look at, and you know, the psalmists, not the psalmist, but the, the person, the, the people later on who eventually put the psalms into their final form, put them together, not the writers of the psalms, but those who compiled them into the form we have them, you know, could you can tell that they made efforts to try to find which psalms told the story of salvation history best, right? Yes. And tried to apply. And so this one that we show up here, Psalm 54, um, oh, where'd it go? A lot of them have titles. Many of them are about the life of David, Psalms of David. Either David wrote them or they're about David or in the spirit of David or something like that. And some of them speak to these really specific and sometimes kind of obscure, weird points in salvation history or in the story of David, like we talked about a few weeks ago, right? The He, he feigned madness before King Abimelech. And you don't remember that? <laughs> yeah. Which is one of my favorites. And this is a seem, another seemingly obscure one. So this is called, um, to the uh, with stringed instruments, a masculine psalm of David when the Ziphites went and told Saul that David is hiding among us. And I had to think about that story. I had to remember what that was. I think it's somewhere in 1 Samuel. When the Ziphites went and told Saul that David is hiding among us. And if you remember the story at all, I think it's, I, I, I noted it down someplace and I lost it. But in the story when David, you remember, he's been anointed king by Samuel. He knows that the throne is going to be his, but Saul is still alive and David is waiting patiently for God to let him know when is his time to step in. Yeah. He's not, and, and this is where David becomes the quintessential opposite of most of the figures in the Bible who grasp after things, who grab what they want. David is patient for years and years and years while crazy Saul <laughs> sits on the throne and hears about it and seeks to kill David. And Saul wants him dead because this guy is beloved and he's a warrior and he's righteous and he has the gall to think that he's going to be the king. So David is hiding at one point among these people called the Ziphites. And it's Ziph, Z-I-P-H, is this land somewhere in the, in the hill country of Judah, I think, or Judea. Um, there are people of the tribe of Judah, which is significant because David's of the tribe of Judah. So these are his brothers. These are his kinspeople, his brothers and sisters, his kinsfolk. He's hiding out there and his own people, not just other Israelites, but his own close family, his tribe. They know he's hiding. They kind of, I, I think they even promise to protect him. And then they send up to Saul and they're like, Hey, you want David? He's here. They betray him. They Mm. turn their back. The ones that he's supposed to be able to be most trusted and cared for by turn their back and sell him out to an evil king. The messianic Davidic figure is sold out to an unrighteous leader because of the selfishness of his own brothers. Oh. And I was reading, I was like, oh, that's interesting. So this is is, uh, checkmark two for prefigurement of the crucifixion. Right. Pretty big time. And this is the one where it got like really explicit. Wow. If you realize the story. Yeah, yeah. If if you can uh, make the link in the narrative. Yeah. So so I I put that out there as we kind of trudge forward toward the gospel. The second reading, though, this is where... 
um, I, I don't think it's the wild card this week. Well, hold on. This is this okay. is this is a thing that I, I was having a conversation with uh, Father Daniel Eusterman the other day, and uh, and we were talking about how relativism at its core breaks apart the narrative of a person's life because to be truly relativistic you actually mm. just have to encounter merely the moment mm. and to yeah. actually restore yeah. somebody from relativism you uh, like you you actually have to help them to see the narrative string of life yeah and that's actually part yeah. of i think the the goal of what we're trying to do within these scriptures and to hear david in that in the prefigurement of of the crucifixion of christ and wisdom and how all these things are actually really pointing towards and are essential to understand what the crucifixion is actually doing yes i it just it just lights me up and makes me feel much less relative you know that's good <laughs> as as it should <laughs> yeah, yeah i just i just like i just was thinking oh man that's a really it's a really good point to remember yeah is to is, that's why like one of the things we say as catholics to each other is like you know god does have a plan right because otherwise i can get relativistic and excuse myself for sin in the midst of my own life yeah because i i forget the string i forget the narrative thread that's actually tying the my one life moment together. doesn't really matter compared to all the other moments right exactly yeah. and that this, somehow this moment is dissociated from the other moments of my life and and so to say and which to is really convenient to do but it's not true it's, it's not real it's not true and that's actually part of the problem that we have in our repentance is that we don't um we have a hard time recovering this sense that god is sovereign and actually taking us through these things because here's david and he's looking at his brothers and his brothers just absolutely betrayed him and how do you reconcile that in an individual moment in your life you like it's so powerfully discouraging that you, in a, in a certain certain sense it's you you want to just let it go and try to move on or that's why the 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 pattern of forgiveness in lives is in our lives is so powerful because if we forgive it actually allows it to integrate into the wider narrative like because, but we don't know what that ultimately is going to be, and that's that's what's so exciting about the saints, and what's so exciting about Christ, is that we see that God breathes much longer than we do. He he exhales and inhales in 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 eras, in eons, in um, he breathes much longer than we do. I like that. That's really powerful. Yeah, which is kind of what James is saying. <laughs> James James is speaking to the why. He's basically, I mean, so you're reading through these like, okay, David's kinsfolk betrayed him. These unrighteous, wicked people in the first reading are rejecting the righteous man. They're throwing him under the bus. This is this is the you know the, the expression the tip of the iceberg. This is what we see. Right. This is the evidence. This is what's happening. But then what James does in sort of in the spirit of telling the story of salvation history, the narrative of life, he's saying what's under the surface of the water. That's what you're seeing. That's mm. the tip of the iceberg. Here's why. Mm. Why are they rejecting David? Why are they turning him over? Why are these wicked, you know, turning against this righteous man? Why do they want to put him to death? Why do they not seek wisdom? Well, says James, who's writing to, remember, a Jewish community right. that is facing probably a lot of persecution, a Jewish Christian community, 
who's facing a lot of persecution from their fellow Jews for following this religion that seems pretty wacky at the time. Right. And very strange and foreign and not true Judaism, which is supposed to be standing up and fighting against Rome like they're supposed to. <laughs> and he's saying, look, where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every foul practice. But the wisdom from above, the wisdom that wisdom talked about, the right. wisdom that Solomon discussed, the wisdom that you see in the wisdom literature, it's first of all pure, then it's peaceable, gentle, compliant, full of mercy, good fruits, without inconstancy or insincerity, and the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace for those who cultivate peace. And I don't want to put too fine a point on it because there's some there's there's universality, obviously, to what he just said. But I also am of the opinion, and we've said this on, on podcasts previous weeks when we've been in James, the community that he's writing to, these Jewish people who have become followers of Jesus, they've got to contend with their kinsfolk, their fellow Jewish brothers and sisters and coworkers and family and everything else who are preparing to go to war against Rome, which is a war that I think Jesus very explicitly said, do not fight that war. Right. Turn the other cheek. Forgive those who persecute you. Pray for them. Right. And you see when Jesus is crucified, a swarm of Roman centurions having conversions because that's what he's up against. Right. And now you have this community that's like, well, everybody's telling us to go to war. Everybody is telling us this is the right thing to do. We're being called traitors. We're being called wusses. We're being called whoever, who knows what we're being called mm. because we're not preparing for that specific event, which will lead to the obliteration of Jerusalem and the temple between 66 and 70 AD. I mean, the, the punishment, the temple will never come back. Jerusalem will never be rebuilt in the same way ever after that time. Right. The temple never gets rebuilt. I mean, this is the defining moment. And I don't think you can separate that from what James is saying. Where do the wars and where are all the conflicts among you, where are they coming from? It's from your passions that make war within your members. You covet, but you don't possess. You kill and envy, but you can't obtain. You fight and you wage war, but you don't possess because you don't ask. But you do not receive, and so you do not receive. Because you have, ask wrongly, you spend it on your passions. The people of Israel want freedom from their, from their oppressors. Right. They, want, they want to be freed from slavery. They want to receive fullness of life. And they think if they can just knock down the Romans, if they can just defeat this political superpower, then we'll, we'll be happy. Which is, which is a short-sighted approach. Such a short-sighted approach. Like, this is the, this which is, we do all the time. I mean, yeah, yeah, name the, your application nowadays. Yeah, yeah. That, that, that's, but that's what we're talking about yes. in this deep sense is saying, like, no, to look at the long expression of your narrative. God can uh, breathe long. What did he say? What he did you he just breathes say? much longer than we do. He holds his breath longer than we do. No, that he, a, that's another that's thing another that I one. say. That's what my dad that's says dad. to me. He can hold his breath longer than you can. <laughs> which I love that one. Yeah, which is, which is like, you know, we... we ask but don't receive because we ask wrongly because we're like i'm gonna hold my breath until you do what i want lord and he's like right. well you, you're gonna pass out well, doesn't he even say we don't ask you do not possess because you do not ask right. or, you, or if you do you ask wrongly yeah just spend it what on your, your passions yes because you say oh i know what's gonna i know what's gonna solve my problem and and i'm very passionate and i'm very excited about this and the lord's like mm, okay hold on if you allow me if you enter in like wisdom like we're reading in the first reading you know, we say, okay, if we actually pay attention or reverent towards what God is asking of us, then we can tune in to what the Lord's will is. Yes. But it, but when we are, are totally in an excited state, it becomes very hard. Yes. To, it, that's why it's those who cultivate peace. What is it? Peace and gentle and full of mercy and yes. these, these things to where we say, okay, God, you may actually change my tastes and my opinion. Yeah. It's like it's like I I enjoy different music than I did when I was a teenager, you Do know? You? 
I do. I still like some of my teenage yeah, you music. You still hang on to some of it. You know, but but like for the for the most part, it's like no, I've actually allowed the Lord to change my taste. Yeah, it's like a friend of mine um, uh, gave up uh, Protestantism for Lent one year because <laughs> I, I was always giving stuff stuff for Lent, and <laughs> and he he's like I I was like super. Was he a Protestant? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, so he, to clarify. He's, he's like, I'm going to try the Catholic thing because it doesn't taste as good. It's not as emotional. It's not as powerful sometimes wow. in, a, in a kind of immediate sense experience. Wow. Yeah. So he yeah, was like, I, he's like, I got to try and like hang out and go to just a weird, regular suburban parish and, wow. and to, to see if, if, if I can adjust my taste. It's kind of like giving up sugar. How did it go? His what? name is Father Sean Gelvin. His name is no, Father Greg Peterson. <laughs> is it really? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh. There you go. And like like that's the thing is that is that he 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 actually encountered something because he allowed the Lord to change his tastes because he wasn't trying to just spend it on his passions. Wow, allow the Lord to change your tastes. I love that. Which is a perfect lead into the gospel. Right. right? So one thing I do want to say about the gospel. So Mark, the gospel Mark is centered around you said it last week so well. The Gospel of Mark is centered around this theme of the the hodos, the way, the road, right? right? The way of the Lord, which whenever I heard the term the way of the Lord, I, I abstract, I abstracted it. Yeah, It's not an abstraction. It's literally a road that Jesus travels. And the way that Mark structures this whole gospel is this journey that Jesus is on that the apostles are struggling to keep up with him. Or at times they're trying to get ahead of him, but it's all on the road and both of those matter. And so in the centerpiece of the book, in the middle part of the Gospel of Mark. Hold on. Before you keep going, I wonder if um, when they hear make straight the paths of the Lord, do a bunch of highway work. I wonder if they're like wondering if they're actually going to be doing highway construction as they're walking all of these different roads. I don't know. I'm just messing around with the idea in my brain. It probably doesn't work, but it's fun to... <laughs> Simon was like, I brought my shovel. <laughs> I have a pickaxe. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I Maybe. Don't know. I just wanted to interrupt with that idea. But they, but they're, wa- they're, they're going... They're on the way. They're walking this road yeah. with Jesus in this really like very extended long way. But it's fascinating. In the middle, though, in the center of the book, you have three cycles of basically the same story played out in three different ways. So three different times, and we saw the first one last week, I think. Three different times, someone will make a profession of faith. Someone will get it, right? Right. That same someone or somebody else with them will be shown to not get it. Mm. They will be shown to be blind, right? right? They'll say something, and they'll be shown to not understand what's going on. No, sorry, let me, let me correct that. Okay. Jesus will make a prediction about what's going to happen to them. Not a prediction. He will tell them. Sorry, prediction is the wrong word. He will, he will make a statement about what is going to happen to yes. the Christ. He's going to suffer and die. He's going to be turned over to his enemies. He's going to be spat upon and killed. All these things. Someone will be blind to it. Someone will reject it and not get it. Either Peter last week was like, no, Jesus, this can never happen to you. And he calls him Satan and everything's a mess. Someone will get it. Or in this case today, after he says this pretty profound statement, the Son of Man is going to be handed over. They're going to kill him. Three days later, they're going to rise. What are the apostles doing? They're arguing about how great they are. Blind, totally blind to what he just said. And yeah. then the second, the, the last cycle is going to happen. He's going to say the most R-rated version of his passion, not prediction, but statements um, about how bloody it's going to be and it's spat upon. And that's going to be the one where they're arguing over who gets to sit at his right and his left hand. And they're, they're blind. They don't see because one of the themes of Mark is blindness and deafness. Right. So Jesus will show what's going to happen. Someone will be shown to be blind. And in response, Jesus will teach them and he'll teach in the form of paradox right? He'll teach something that's the opposite of what you expect. So after Peter's 
misunderstanding of that. No, that can never happen to you. Right. Remember, what does he say? Is that the one where he says, if you want to be first in the kingdom, you have to be last and the servant of all? Well, we have that actually right here. Or is that, that's this one. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I forget what he says. Is that, is last week where he takes the little children? No, that's no, where that's this, this was. Week. <laughs> I'm conflating all of them. Um, talk for a second. I just, I'm curious what it was last week. Cause I just am not remembering. Yeah, I don't I, I don't have it in my brain either. No, it's okay. Uh it's it's really good, but the way that Mark does it, so he he will teach the apostles basically, okay, you guys are blind. Let me show you. Right. But again, he teaches in paradox. He oh, takes, whoever he would t- lose his life, whoever would save his life will lose it, is what he says to Peter. And then this week he says, if you want to be the greatest, you have to be the least and the servant. And then the third one, I forget what he says in the third one. Um Yeah, it's again one of those uh, I'm I'm blanking on what it is. But the point is, the apostles, here's the thing. We know that, well, I don't know. I mean, how how do you put a fine point on this? There's so many different applications. The apostles want what they want because they are doing what James warns us not to do. They are living out their passions. They're like, this guy is the king. This guy is the Christ. He is the Messiah that we've been waiting for. And if we cling to him, if we keep following him, we will have the stuff. We will be great. Who's the greatest one? Who do you think is going to be the better general in the kingdom? Who do you think is going to have the better throne? I think it's me. And Jesus, meanwhile, is like, you guys, I'm the kind of king that is going to be rejected and turned over to his enemies and killed. And I'm sure Jesus, in the back of his mind, has um, David's story. Because who is it that's going to turn him over? Who is in that group on this very day? Who's going to be one of those who turns him over to his enemies? Who's going to be the Ziphite who turns him over to Saul? Well, it's Judas, one of his own, one of his closest. I mean, this is obvious, but why is he doing it? I mean, you can make the argument that Judas is, you know, horrible or a jerk or evil or working as a pawn of Satan. You you can make that argument. Maybe. I don't know what's happening in the heart of Judas. Or you can make the argument that Judas is like, no, I, I think he is the Christ but I'm ready for some magic shows. I, I'm ready for him to start doing the stuff. So maybe if I turn him over to the authorities, it will prompt him to finally act because I'm waiting for this guy to get up and do the things he was saying he's going to do. Whoa. So I'm going to set the wheels in motion. That's my theory on Judas. Whoa. I don't think he's just I've some horrible that. human being. I think he actually believes, but I think he's, what is he doing? He's doing what all of the figures in the old Testament do when they're in the wrong. He takes it into his own hands. I will do it. God's not going to act, so I will act. Even if it means making God act, I will do it mm. because I am passionate. And he may even be passionate about the right things, mm. that I want this guy to take up his throne. I want him to be Messiah, and I want him to do it how I want him to do it. That's my theory on Judas. But it makes a lot more sense than, it makes just on a human level, it makes more yes. sense than just this, he's the scoundrel in their midst who's kind of constantly lying in wait. May, maybe, that could be too. But it's a much more human response to think, no, I'm, I'm actually seeking a perceived good, but I'm going to do it the way that I'm going to do it. Ooh, that's really, that's a, that's a really general, I, I, you're blowing my mind because I, I like, I've never, I've always kind of I didn't make it. up that theory. I mean, no, that's out no, there. No, no, yeah. Like I've just always seen him as cruel, but like this is, this is the thing is, is that, isn't that It feels the way, too easy to me. Yeah. Like, you know. Because then I don't have to associate with him as much. 
I'm like, well, I would never do that. Yeah, it's but like, when you, but, but you when you say, a little. you say like, no, I, I want to, I want to advance this. Right. It's, it's also, it's, it's like, why, why do we give ourselves over to our passions? Mm-hmm. Is because we're trying to provide for our own happiness. Yeah, absolutely. And, and we absolutely. think that everything's going to be okay if we have this particular thing, and we get caught in the immediate and not in the long, and like, and, and that's actually where like, this podcast and this work that we do together. Is, is always like enlightening to my own soul because it reminds me of my own story. It tells me who I am. Yeah. It's like, and who we are as a family and how that actually has been conveyed over time and how how do I respond in this immediate moment in a way that's faithful yeah. and not rebellious and not um, self-conceited or self-concerned, mm-hmm. but to do it in a way that it allows God to enter in and to transform me in this moment. Yeah. Um, because because like I don't convert myself because I don't let the Lord convert me. I like I as how do I get actually to conversion but to open myself and change what I'm doing right now to be in accord with what God is trying to do. Right. Which is why I think it's appropriate that Jesus ends at least our portion of the reading by putting a child in their midst and say whoever uh, what does he say? Something whoever like uh, receive this child, yeah, yeah. be like a child, be receives like a... me, and whoever receives me receives me not one, but the one who sent me. Which, if you think about, what did children not do? What what are, children are dependent on their parents? They need to wait. And that's the thing that I think sometimes children are most frustrated by. Yes. Like, why do I have to wait for you to take me to this place or do this thing? One of the things children just have to deal with is that I need my parents to do it for me because mm. I can't. Well, what do we do when we become adults? We're like, well, I'm going to do it myself. Right. Which Children have this built-in need to trust someone else to take care of them. Right. Because Jesus isn't wanting us to be immature or childish, but children have to be dependent. What's the, what's the common denominator with children? They're dependent. Right. And, and we grow up and we begin to think that we're not dependent on anything except well, us. Well, again, this is the thing is that the portion of their lives that they have to wait is a much higher percentage than ours. <laughs> yeah, that's true. And so when God's, uh, and, and for yeah. us, it's like for him, a moment is a thousand years. Right. Yeah. Or a thousand yeah. years is a moment. It, it, God can act in, in his profound and, and real ways. And how do we allow God to be God? Yeah. 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 Oh, it's hard. Which, but we're in good company. I mean, this is the whole point of the gospel. The gospel is saying, hey, do you think this is hard? Are you struggling with this? Do you feel blind and deaf and always trying to do it yourself? Well, guess what? You're in real good company because these are Jesus's closest allies and And they're doing the same thing. Yeah. And I will give you wisdom. Yeah. (laughs) Wow. Just ran into my microphone. Yeah. Getting wild. Hey, thanks for, thanks for being with us. May wisdom be with you. The spirit, may you be transformed and converted (sighs) in heart and mind. I mean, that's like... Gosh, and pray for us. Yeah. Pray, pray for us that we be converted, uh, because it would be a much better podcast if we were had deeper conversion. We were holy. <laughs> if we were a, holy, yeah. Yeah, that would be a better podcast. <laughs> that's, that's like, man, I'm really trying. Maybe man. next week we'll be holy. Okay, <laughs> maybe next week. So pray for that. We love you. God bless you guys. See you next week. Bye. The Word on the Hill is a production of the Aquinas Institute for Catholic Thought here in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. You can find us online at www.thomascenter.org slash A-I-C-T. You can find the Lanky Guys at lankyguys.org, and you can send us an email at lankyguys at thomascenter.org. Thanks, everybody. See you next time.